Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Brandon Munro, CEO of Bannerman Resources, or an ASX-listed uranium junior with assets in Namibia. Today, they released their scoping study. Now, it's a dramatic change for the company, having gone from £7.2 million pounds down to £3.5 million. Pounds. Also, CapEx down from around £800 million down to about £250. The difference is significant. It puts them into a category of investable, in our opinion. Uh, we talk through how they're going to deliver it, why it's taken so long to get to this point, and what were the discussions at board level. And we also get into a little bit about the options available to them in terms of getting this thing financed moving forward. So lots to discuss. Enjoy the podcast. Brandon Monroe, how are you, sir? I'm really well. How are you, Matt? Yeah, good. Saw the announcement this morning. Um, Some good numbers on there. Um, But before we kind of dive into that, can you, just for people new coming into the uranium space and looking at various uranium stories, it might be worth giving a one-minute overview of your project, then I want to talk in detail about your scoping study uh, numbers, please. We're Bannerman Resources. We're listed on the ASX. Our project is the Atango project in Namibia. We've been focused on uranium since 2006, and the project has been subjected all the way through feasibility to a DFS and then even a pilot plant. But as we're about to discuss, we've now gone back to the future in terms of a scoping study with the Atango 8 project. It's uh, got environmental and social permitting and we love operating in Namibia and uh, we're quite active in the nuclear sector as well which helps us a lot when it comes to talking about how to understand this sector, how to market to it and how to build a project in an industry that can be quite complex. Well yes it can Um, as we talked about most most weeks but um, what, what we've noticed here is you've got a DFS from 2015 huge capex and i think that was a problem for the marketplace people thought this is too much money to raise and there's only going to be a few options available to you in terms of funding so i think that was a concern you've addressed it with this new scoping study well i think that's what you're trying to do so maybe if you could explain why you've changed things up a bit yeah so it was a problem for the market for the stock exchange market investor market Um, We've, like all of our peers in this deep uranium bear market, we've had a diminishing market capitalisation. And when you apply a typical metric against the capital cost, which in our 2015 DFS was $793 you end up with an equation that requires some fairly significant financial steps to be taken. Now, having said that, I would say in our defence that for this sector, for the uranium sector and the nuclear energy sector, these are still relatively small numbers. You've got to remember that the number of reactors that our project could service at those numbers had a construction cost well north of $80 billion. But be that as it may, we're not uh, servicing reactors at the moment. We are striving to add shareholder value. And for some time now, we've been looking at what we can do with this project to get an initial or a a startup scale with a much lower capital hurdle that gets us into business. And then depending on how the market progresses from there, we're in a position to either continue at that level for a long mine life, or we've got the option of adding another train and increasing the scale of our production to take advantage of a greater proportion of this enormous ore body that we've got 
at a tango in Namibia. Okay, so you've listened to the market, that, that's clear, but why, why did it take so long? I mean, you, the DFS was from 2015. It's five years later, you're now coming out with a, a smaller number. What, what, why so slow? Yeah, that's a fair comment. So there's a couple of things to think about. First of all, when the DFS was scoped out, so we did release our initial DFS in 2012. When that was scoped out, it was pre-Fukushima. And this sector was enjoying the nuclear renaissance. It was crying out for pounds. So the 7.2 million pounds per annum average production rate for that large project was entirely appropriate and certainly a competitive advantage. Then we, the market took some time to react to Fukushima, took some time to be obvious what the demand destruction had been there and for that recovery to take place. But also we need to remember that there's been a number of technology enablers for us to be able to do what we've done here. Uh, back in 2012, we didn't have the nanofiltration and membrane options that we've managed to incorporate into this project. Um, that's dramatically improved our recoveries and it's also improved our reagent usage and really decreased our acid use. So we needed those wins to be able to dial back the project to a much smaller scale whilst maintaining robust economics. And look, the other thing that I'd just say about this is uh, the, there was a lot of scaling work done, um, including uh, projects that were underway when I came into this role in 2016. But it was only when we really dialed it back significantly that we stayed within a pit shell configuration that really dropped the stripping ratio down to a point where we could do what we've been able to do with this scoping study. So give us some of those other numbers, I mean, in terms of being able to do some comparables from what you had, which I assume is still an option, that you're, but you're parking it up in favour of this new scoping study, this new direction. But can you help us with the, kind of the, the comparison of seeing what you could, be, could do versus what you're now going to aim to do? Sure. And look, let's come back to that question about what the giant project is still for us and what options it gives us. Because I, I really do think that that's important for shareholders and investors to understand. So first of all, on CapEx, the 2015 DFS optimization study came out with a CapEx number of 793 million US. What we have here is a project that we've called a Tango 8. So we'll be calling it a Tango 8 from now on. And that refers to the throughput that's going through the mill. The giant project was 20 million tonnes per annum through the mill or the processing plant. A Tango 8 is 8 million tonnes per annum. So in other words, we're putting only 40% of the material through the mill that we would otherwise. But because we get a little bit of a kick in grade, we're operating um, for the first 50 million pounds, in slightly higher grade, we get a 20% kick. So in actual fact, we operate at a 40% throughput, but we get about 50% of the production. So three and a half million pounds per annum. So back to capital cost, 793 million US in 2015. We've now got half of the production, but we've brought that capital all the way down to 254 million as a pre-production capital number. And not only that, but the sustaining capital has been reduced dramatically by about $250 million over the life of that mine. So uh, our all-in sustaining costs have come down significantly as well. 
one thing that's very important is quite often with a big project like this, you can simply do a trade-off. So you can trade your upfront capital for increased operating costs. And we're very proud to say that we haven't needed to do that. The uh, cash costs have remained pretty much exactly where they were at uh, circa $37 per pound. And the all-in sustaining cost is just a smidge over 40. So at the moment it's 40 dollars uh, and 90 cents per pound which com which is very comparable with what we had back in 2015 and the total throughput or the total um, proposed mine over the life of mine is 51 million pounds and that compares with 113 million pounds under the 2015 dfs but of course those pounds aren't going anywhere. So that's one of the things that just gives us so much optionality going forward once we see just how deep this market deficit is and what that ultimately does for pricing. Um, in terms of what our uh, pinch points are, when we did the 2015 optimization study, we assumed a price of $75 a pound. In this case, we've been able to assume a price of $65 a pound and still end up with an attractive NPV. Um, at that level, it's $212 million US. So it's still a very significant premium over our current market cap, which um, before we started trading today, sits at circa 30 million US dollars. So there's still a lot of room for investors to enjoy our progress as we progress this project. Okay, I, I don't want to get into a macro discussion with you because obviously price today is at 32 bucks or, or, or thereabouts. You're talking about 65. We're a long ways from that. But you and I on a weekly basis talk about the macro coming. So I'm going to park that for this conversation for May, or maybe we'll pick on pick up on it on at the end. But um, again, just to help me understand the, the decision making that's going on at board level, because you had a, you had a I guess it's an optimization process you've gone through and said, well, why is it three and a half million pounds you've settled on per, per annum versus five or two? Um, yeah, how, how do you, what, what was the thinking? What was the discussion around that? Well, initially we dropped the production throughput dramatically down to five million pounds. Um, as I said, we'd done previously exercises in testing uh, reductions in throughputs down to say from 20 million pounds per annum where we started in 2015 down to 15 and 10. And by looking at things differently, we said, what if we stay within a very low strip ratio zone of the ore body? Because our ore body does outcrop. So we get a nice win in the early years. And we reduced it all the way down to 5 million tonnes per annum and saw some very promising results there. That gave us the confirmation that, yes, this is a viable um, alternative to invest further in. And then what we did is uh, basically pitch shell optimization. We worked with Quebecer consultants who um, very, very talented mining engineers out of Namibia. Um, they've done a lot of the work for Rossing and others. And uh, they uh, ran the different pitch shells and optimized the DFS, uh, optimized the NPV at 8 million tonnes per annum. And from there, we just had to cross test against various tolerances such as what impact does that throughput have on external infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we came back very comfortable that that was both the right economic number for the pit. It was the right economic number for 
water and power and other things that we were looking to get a win on by reducing our demand. And also the perfect number for the market, three and a half million pounds, I think is an ideal number for the market as we can predict and understand it over the next three, four, five years. Okay, well, that's another interesting point and perhaps one for another day in terms of how you quantify how much how many pounds you're going to be able to sell into market? You know, because again, we've we've looked and studied some companies who are predicting much higher numbers from scratch, having never produced before, and, and getting that into market. So that I say, I think as a conversation for another day. But um, what I'm surprised you didn't mention there was part of the factor being what you thought you could get finance, because with a lower capex, I'm assuming you're opening up your options. People have always thought 800 million. That's got to be the Chinese. That's the only way you're going to get financed. And they're looking to hear you talk about relationships with Chinese groups, which you sort of have intimated. But at these sorts of levels, what other doors do you open? Well, you're right. Uh, the Chinese option, if I can put it that way, certainly is very valid. I mean, we've talked at length about how China's demand for uranium going forward is absolutely voracious. So whether they're a financier, whether they're an offtake partner, whether they're a customer, um, whether they're a joint venture partner, all of those options still remain equally valid here. But as you point out, Matt, we do now have many other options. Um, there's vertical integration style options into a variety of different players that perhaps we couldn't have achieved at 7.2 million pounds per annum because we were just too big to um, vertically integrate into a nuclear power business. Whereas now at 3.5 million pounds, that services say eight or nine one gigawatt reactors per annum. So there are many players who have a fleet of that size or intentions or plans to create a fleet of that size who could then look at us as being um, a large part of their solution for future security of supply in whole or in part. Um, it, it also makes us attractive from a conventional financing perspective. So at $65 a pound, we've got an IRR that's in the 20s. Um, before, at 2015, we were um, hitting 15% IRR at a $75 per pound price assumption. So we've now got something that looks a lot more robust, not only in terms of the absolute amount of capital required if we would go to conventional financing, but also in terms of the returns that we can offer investors down that path. And uh, because of the optionality that we've got with the bigger project, uh, it opens a number of different strategic options for us to start looking at other assets. And um, when we start to see this whole sector move more into a consolidation phase, we've now effectively got two approaches to offer when it comes to a consolidation. We've, we've got a three and a half million pound production project that's got low capex, relatively low capex hurdles, environmentally approved and all of that sitting in Namibia, exactly where you'd want it. But there's also still the giant that's sitting there. It's got a DFS. It's got a pilot plant. No one can take that away from us. All of the pounds are there. There's still 271 million pounds of uranium sitting there in the resource. And we can now work up three and a half million pound project, Tango 8, through PFS, DFS, all the while keeping a very keen eye on the market. And if the market does what certainly I hope it will and most uranium investors do, 
well, then that giant size project is still going to be very much a viable alternative. And it really comes down to what market sizing do we want to offer. So I think that breadth of possibilities, including the lower hurdle to get into production with a Tango 8, um, it creates a, a multitude of opportunities for us to build the project ourselves realistically, to conventionally finance it with offtake arrangements through to um, other arrangements, including consolidations, peer mergers, vertical integrations, soft debt and financing. I really feel like we've now got all of that in front of us and very much looking forward to seeing how the market plays out as to which of those are going to deliver the best shareholder value. You have reduced the price of uranium in your, in your calculations from 75 to 65. So where has the confidence come from to do that? Well, we've done that really just to demonstrate that the hurdles for getting into production are significantly decreased. So it's not about my level of confidence for this market reducing by $10 a pound. It's rather being able to demonstrate that we can produce a you know, plus 20% IRR and a um, 200 um, odd million NPV at $65. Of course, at 75, it looks even better. And, and at $80 a pound, we'd probably start thinking about the bigger project because of the extreme leverage that we get from that. And look, $65 is very consistent with many of the guests that I've seen you talking about. That seems to be a well-accepted number on the production side. And I can tell you when you have closed-door discussions with utilities, you don't get any eyebrow raising at $65 either. Um, it is a distance from where we are at the moment. And you do, uh, you know, you get people on... Um, Twitter, YouTube, in private conversations who might say, well, look, where are you going to be at $55? What happens? But what investors need to understand is that there is no single clearing price when it comes to term contracts. Uh, utilities will operate within a band. They'll have a whole portfolio of contracts, some of which will be below $55, some will be above $65, and they need that band to achieve enough fuel to go through their reactors. So this concept of us sitting at $55, for example, for some time, um, well, that'll be great for 60% of the market because Cameco can happily produce into that and because Adamprom can happily produce into that. But where's the other 40% of the market going to come from as we start to see this, uh, this deep depletion of supply from 24, 2025? So we'll be there. We'll be there waiting for that. And if we do see a situation where it's still $55, um, we know that we will have utilities banging down our door very soon after that as they realise that that theoretical number of $55 only fills their reactors with 60% of the fuel that they need. And at that point, because of the dynamics with um, nuclear fuel being still only a fairly small proportion of the cost of producing nuclear power, they'll have to come to the market at whatever cost is required because it's not a very happy situation to run a reactor at only 60% of the fuel that it needs. Okay, I mean, I think that is a consistent story. You're, you're right. Um, We're hearing that number from the US, uh, you know, uranium producers. We're hearing that from the Canadians. You know, we're, he we're hearing that across the board. So I think it will be interesting, interesting for me as an investor to see how quickly that price discovery comes. But yeah, I, I, I kind of buy your argument. Now, the Middle East is becoming a bit of a player now. And you, being in Africa, and, and we've seen in, in other sectors, 
you know, groups in the Middle East kind of coming down into Africa for like, you know, food security, food supply um, and, and other kind of you know, mineral resources. Is that a reasonable likelihood? Is that a conversation you could have or does that put you at a disadvantage when talking to US utilities? It certainly is an interesting part of the sector for the uranium sector generally, but also this type of financing. Um, obviously, it's well known that Middle Eastern groups have got very deep pockets. Uh, it's also quite well understood that they're looking to transition away from a dependency on hydrocarbons. Uh, and we've seen that both through the Emirates um, program at BRCA, where the, where the South Koreans have completed the first reactor and they'll install 5.6 gigawatts there at Baraka. Uh, we've also seen it in Saudi Arabia, for example, where they've announced plans to construct a nuclear fleet over the next decade of 17 reactors. A lot of that's driven by the desire to install nuclear power for desalination purposes, which of course in that environment dramatically opens up a whole number of facets of their society and their industry. So what we can offer either Middle Eastern groups as customers, to Middle Eastern groups as offtake partners, or potentially as financing solutions, is this capacity to deliver three and a half million pounds, support eight, nine reactors, or if you look at it another way, it can support um, a reactor demand for two and a half million pounds plus a slowly build up of inventory. That, with the African connection that you've just identified, I think is a very powerful option for us and something that I really do think will, will make those conversations quite interesting when it's time to have them. Okay, but let's remind everyone, this is just a scoping study. You need to do a PFS, you need to do a DFS. And if if I, you know, follow your line of argument with regards to market, you know, re- recovering, because the supply demand story that we've talked about on numerous occasions, um, you're going to need to get a move on. So how quickly can you deliver that um, what, what is the process that you're, you're envisaging? Well, we've really got an advantage here, Matt, because we've beaten this path. We, we've kind of constructed the broad highway, which is a DFS with all of that cost and expense and resources. Um, and now we just need to lay a little bit of a, a one-laner next door to it with this scoping study. Um, so really what that means in practice, if you look at the, the cost, the, the risk in terms of blowout of budget or timeframes to move from scoping study to PFS, and also where the technical risk or the failure risk lies. And um, the key things are, first of all, number one, the risk associated with the ore body and the requirement for resource drilling. We don't have that. We've drilled 360,000 metres into a tango. So there's no more drilling that's going to be required. The next big risk factor, particularly in uh, uranium projects, is metallurgy. Um, Again, there's nothing more that we can do in metallurgy. Uh, We've had a demo plant, a pilot plant operating for three years. And, um, you know, the final risk factor is environmental. Normally, at this point, you've completed your scoping study, you're moving towards a PFS. It's about starting to get your baseline together, starting to think about how you're going to obtain environmental approvals. Now, again, we've got the environmental and social approvals already in place for a much bigger impact project. So that's not an issue either. So we feel that we can move through a PFS in very quick time frame for what is still a very big project uh, at three and a half million pounds. We think we can get that done in about nine months. 
And although we haven't yet appointed the consultants that we want to use for the PFS, we think that we can get one done with very, for very good value for such a big project. We want to go with top shelf, high caliber consultants so that this outcome and this product very much sits alongside the high quality technical work that's already been done since 2006 at a tango. And we think we, we don't see why we can't get all of that done for a million dollars Australian. So that means that with our cash balance, we're still in a very strong position here uh, to move it forward. And to answer your question more directly, we're ready to get on with it. We're ready to get hopping here. We think that we can time this project perfectly for when the market's going to be crying out for three and a half million pounds. So how to, tell me a bit about that. So it's going to be nine months to deliver the PFS from when you appoint uh, your consultants. Um, you must have a view then as to when you think the market is going to recover to be able to say, we're going to time this perfectly. Because after you do a PFS, you've got more studies to fund. How are you going to do that? Or are you going to make leave that till further down the line to um, try and work out because you think the market will be a little bit better? Yeah, we've got nine months of PFS and we, we anticipate that a DFS would take about another nine months. And realistically, you're not going to be marketing uh, with any certainty to utilities until you're towards the end of a DFS process. Uh, you certainly can't really commit to long-term contracts until you've got that level of, un- of certainty, even with all the advantages that we've got. Uh, so I would say that's the time frame. And uh, fast forward nine to 12 months from here with all the macro dynamics that we've been talking about and the huge gaping deficits that we're seeing open up in this sector, uh, I think that'll be perfect timing, not only for making the decision to progress to DFS, uh, but also in terms of having those conversations with utilities. Okay, so you've got uh, a PFS coming. It's going to cost you around a million bucks. And to do a DFS, that's going to, well, again, you know, what's that going to cost you? How much cash have you got left today? And are you going to need to raise capital in the market to get that over the line? Well, at the moment, we closed 30 June with $4.2 million Australian. So obviously, if we spend, let's call it a million dollars on the PFS, we've still got more than $3 million. For the last 12 months, we burnt through a smidge over $2 million. So we're running at a half million dollars per quarter cash burn, including the project work. So we've been able to get the scoping study done and all of the other optimization work, run the demonstration plant, complete the membrane test work to a DFS level. We've been able to achieve all of that within a half million dollar per quarter cash burn. So we're pretty tight. So you can extrapolate from that, that after deducting a million dollars for the PFS, Uh, we've still got more than a year of runway. And from there, we can look at what the market looks like and decide what pace and, uh, you know, whether we're prepared to use existing cash reserves to fund a DFS or if we need to go back to the market for that. But I think the key point is we don't need to raise anytime soon. We're not under duress to raise unless uh, in a a flat market as we're seeing at the moment. And we're going to be able to put out some good numbers um, before we need to think about using cash balances versus raising fresh equity to progress the project. Now, looking at these numbers, this is a scoping study. It, it, it's early stage. What I need to believe is that these are accurate as can be. You, and I, I guess you'll get more and more accurate the more work you do through the PFS and DFS. But 
you know, you're going to market with a pretty big claim here. Have you managed to, for instance, keep the the capital cost down, the operating cost down like this? Because it seems to me the bulk tonnage operation, you know, the economics should change. So there's a couple of things to say about that. The first one is uh, it is a big change in capital. You know, it's 793 down to 254. Um, so it's a much greater than proportionate drop in capital. But there are some good reasons for that. Um, first of all, of course, the throughput is 40%, not 50%. The output is 50% because we get a kick in grade, but the throughput's 40%. So immediately that's going to reduce certain capital items. But the big win for us has been the capacity to move from owner mining to contract mining. So that's, that's reduced over a million, 100 million US of pre-production capital because we don't need to buy the fleet and taken 250 million US out of sustaining capital over the life of the mine because we don't need to service and replace the fleet and so on. So that's been a big, punched a big hole in our capex. Um, another one is because we were uh, under the DFS operating at such a large scale, you know, a number of the aspects of that scale require a special solution. So the best example is the heap leaching. We had what's called a racetrack heap leach system, which is used in enormous copper mines in South America and elsewhere in the world. But there's quite a lot of kit involved for that. Now, because it's a much smaller throughput, we can go more conventional stacking of our heaps. And that's taken circa $80 million out of the infrastructure bill that we've got. There's a few other things that start to add up. Um, because our um, power requirements are less, we don't need to build a substation. We can just uh, run a line from the existing power infrastructure that's around the corner. Um, there's other things like that. And then the final thing is we've been working hard on this project since 2015, and there's a number of smaller wins that we've had that just add up and accumulate. So, for example, what we released in the processing optimization study in 2017, uh, we've been working on the membrane study. So we've now moved from SX uh, solvent extraction to iron exchange with nanofiltration. All of those things start to punch small holes in capital that then add up. So when you start to run down the list of where we've had those capital wins, bearing in mind that we've punched a huge hole through switching from owner mining to contract mining, I think we've presented very credible numbers. How do you think the market's going to react to this story? Do you think the market cares? I think it will care. I definitely think it will care. This is fantastic news for Bannerman. It might take a little bit of explaining. It might take some time for the market to fully react. But we, we need to look at what's happened here. Bannerman has been regarded as an out-of-the-money option on a very, very big project for quite some time. And now what we've done is we've retained all of the advantages of that very, very large scale project and what it can offer strategically to multiple parties in this sector and delivered in the scoping study phase a, an attractive, developable project that still has significant size compared to our peers. It's still amongst the largest development projects out there that can produce within a few years in, in a jurisdiction where we've already got environmental and social permitting and uh, socially, politically and environmentally, they're very comfortable with uranium mining. So I certainly think the market should care. We, we can have a chat in a couple of weeks' time and just see how much it does. But I'm excited about this and I'll be very surprised if the market, with 
a bit of time to explain what we're on about here. I'll be very surprised if the market doesn't get excited behind us as well. Okay, but it doesn't have the sex and the sizzle of the Athabasca Basin, you know, it's it's Africa. I think that's something that's thrown at you guys a lot. I mean, how do you respond to that? We're going to be producing pounds before the Athabasca Basin. So you can have all the sex and the sizzle, but if you're looking through a, a bulletproof window at that sexy sizzling project, then it doesn't do you any good. What do you mean by that? Well, um, you need to be able to step through and produce pounds environmentally, socially and politically. And in Namibia, we can do that. We can do that. We need to get our studies done. We need to uh, get our contracting and financing done. And then we're away. When we're away, we're not still doing environmental baselines. We're not still um, waiting for environmental approvals and so on. And, uh, you know, I hope for my colleagues in Athabasca that those things come quickly for them. That the, I know that the market's going to need them. So I certainly don't feel threatened by a bunch of production coming in from the Athabasca. But that is still a big process that needs to take place. And I'm delighted to say that we do not have that ahead of us. You've got a board he pretty experienced boards, okay? And again, it's something we've talked about before and it's something I keep reminding investors. What have been their concerns with this segue from large project to small project? Um, you know, what are, the, what are the issues that they wanted to deal with and what are the issues that they still think lie ahead? So the biggest issue in terms of dealing with is um, I like to say that I've got a healthy degree of scepticism around the boardroom table. And really, truly, that is the best board to have. Um, it's far from a group of yes men. Um, I'd like to think that I've got built the board's confidence over time, but I get plenty of difficult questions from them. And that, I think, is ultimately the best approach to take. So they've been sceptical about whether you can take a bulk tonnage project such as what we've got here, dramatically reduce its throughput, and end up with better project economics. So that's what's pushed us through this process. Pleased to say that we've proved it now to the board. Um, so that is no longer a scepticism that we need to deal with. And uh, you know, there's a lot of good reasons why we've been able to accomplish that because of stripping ratios, slight increases in grade, et cetera, et cetera. So going forward, um, I think the, the main uh, challenge that the board sees is educating the market into understanding that this is an and or. Um, markets often can only really latch onto and think about one scale of project and obviously that's what we're going to be talking about for quite some time because that's what we've now got to explain to the market. But my, the board sees my challenge as reminding everybody that 20 million tonne of tango producing 7.2 million pounds is still an enormously valuable asset for our company. Even though all of the news flow and all of the focus and everything that we're going to be talking about is a tango eight, the eight million pound, uh, tonne per annum project that's producing three and a half million pounds per annum. Okay, so you've, I just, again, I want to go over some, some of these numbers if you don't mind. Okay, so nine, nine months PFS, you're going to skip the feasibility, go straight to DFS. Let's say that thing gets wrapped up in two years. You've got two years to construction, four years. So why do you say you're timing this perfectly? What makes you, what makes you say that? Because when you look at, let's use the WNA numbers, because as you know, I'm very familiar with those. Um, what we see from the WNA reference case, and in particular the uppercase, is you see 
supply depletion in this sector really start to bite from 2024 and in particular 2025. Um, so this is all putting aside to one side all of the supply disruption that we've seen because of COVID. You know, we're just ignoring that for now. But if you think about it, 2021, Ranger, one of the biggest uranium mines historically, ceases production in January, this coming January. Cominac in Niger ceases production in 2021 as well. Um, by 2024 and 2025, we've got that supply depletion exacerbating by certain Kazakh assets uh, starting to deplete. And when WNA in their nuclear fuel report start to model out that uranium supply that can come back into the market, even after allowing for projects, including a Tango, to get into production and start producing, and after allowing for all of the care and maintenance projects, MacArthur River, obviously Cigar Lake coming back on, Langer Heinrich and others, there's still a big gaping supply gap opening up from 2024, 2025. The events that we've had just now with COVID related supply disruption, they're gonna continue into 2021. They're gonna have the effect of really tightening up remaining inventory and getting the attention of utilities. And I think shifting this whole dynamic from where it's been of complacency with cheap Kazakh overproduction being available for seven, several years through to concern. And if we can time that inflection point from concern, from complacency to concern, and be in front of utilities with a viable project that has relatively low hurdles to development, that's why I say I think we can time this perfectly. I, can, I think we can be in front of utilities presenting a solution to the extent of three and a half million pounds exactly at the time when they're going to have to be thinking very, very hard about where they're going to get their pounds from 2024, 2025 onwards. It's interesting. It kind of feels like you've been biding your time, waiting for the moment. And to get this study out now, I mean, it really is a different Bannerman from the last Bannerman I spoke to. So um, I'd be interested to see, you know, the progress over the next few months, certainly, you know, when you do commission this PFS and get, get that going. I think that's going to be a real, real moment to truly get behind the economics that you're purporting you should be able to achieve. So, look, um, Brandon, look, thanks very much for that run-through. I appreciate that. We, we'll catch up this week, um, later this week, um, to talk about the Kazatom Prom uh, uh, quarterly as well, if, if you don't mind. What was, was, what, in summary, what, what was your take on it? So, look, I think the, the most important comments in that relatively short um, document was First of all, Kazadam Prom confirmed that they've entered the spot market. So it's been something that's been rumoured for a while. Um, now we know that that is the case. And we know that they're going to have to continue in the spot market. Um, the other thing that they acknowledged that will start to get the attention of generalist investors in particular is they acknowledged a severe impact on their production in the second half of this year. And that's because something that we've talked about a lot, the lag effect, and they said that that lag effect could continue as long as nine months um, from the disruption. So even once they're back in business, we've still got many more months of disruption coming out of Kazakhstan. So that's now very much put 2021 under doubt. And remember, it was only last week that Cameco started to raise the possibility of Cigar Lake production in 2021 being under guidance because of delays in doing some of the forward development work that they'd need to. 
um, to ensure that they're producing at 18 million pounds in 2021. So I think uh, what we've got out of that is they're not acknowledging any further delays to them getting uh, into re a return to production. They're emphasising that it's going to be slow and cautious. They're already in the spot market and this is going to be a supply disruption that's going to keep giving to investors for quite some time. Okay, I'm looking forward to talking about that with you later this week. Congratulations on the scoping study numbers. I think that puts you in a very unique, small group, I guess, of a, a category which should should get people's attention. So I look forward to sort of seeing how people react as well. So um, thanks again. I'll speak to you later this week. Yeah, thanks very much. And thanks for all the good questions. Tough questions. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.